1: Hey everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian from A couple of house-cleaning businesses. Businesses? Businesses. We business. own a couple of house-cleaning businesses. <laughs> and I'd really like to get the word out, talk about that with all of you. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com, slash Good. You can call us, 312-660-2594. You used to be able to text us, but That didn't work out. I'm sorry, Brian. Not so well. I, that was my brainchild.
2: I was like, this is going to transform the was... show. Then the only people who text us were from within the station.
1: Uh, you're right. I was like, you can just walk on down here and tell us what you were thinking. So that's okay. I'm sure no one will be sad that we You win that some, you lose some. That's yeah, true. That's kind of how it goes. All right. So uh, to start the show, the story that literally everyone that I've talked to today has been talking about. This is the story. Um, that I, I think even as we were leaving the station yesterday, was, that's where we was first heard of it. Just kind of yeah. unfolding. And uh, if you're not familiar, uh, the story, which is now actually like a year old, I think, from uh, Botham Jean yes. who was uh, who was murdered in his apartment. Uh, police officer entered uh, the wrong apartment, thinking it was hers, and uh, and shot him there. And it's been a long, arduous process. And yesterday was the sentencing, which we're going to talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But his younger brother, Brant, actually, is kind of the one making headlines when uh, he made some pretty profound comments uh, to the woman that murdered his brother. So I want you to hear a little bit of that, and then uh, we'll react to it.
0: I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but Can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes.
1: So when you watch that video, uh, to say that it's moving is a massive understatement. right? I mean, I'm not even really a crier, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It, it like, moved me to profound tears. And for a number of reasons, and we probably won't have time to get into that exactly why. And so he actually steps down from the stand and he embraces uh, Amber Uh, Geiger's Geiger's, yeah yeah. and uh and and it was it was really just a touching moving scene and then I saw all these people sharing the video and talking about the power of forgiveness and before I move into the the second part of this discussion what what did you think when you saw the video
2: like you said unbelievably moving and uh, because of the of the senselessness and the tragedy of the story right part of the movingness of it is what it's coming out of you know she walked into Just the wrong apartment and killed a guy, you know, this guy's brother who was just in his own apartment eating ice cream. Right. Like it's just doesn't make sense. And she was convicted of murder. Uh, There's there's nothing redeeming. It's all tragedy in this story. And so for the 18 year old brother to get up who the day before, I believe the mom had said, I don't know how he's doing. Like he's been really quiet Um, for him to share that on the stand was just compelling. And I think the reason it just started getting shared all around is because we talk a lot about forgiveness and we talk a lot about grace and we talk a lot about um, the importance of forgiveness in people's lives. Like we've all preached sermons on this, but this I've never seen a uh, a a more um, compelling, deep uh, just example uh, of some of the things we're talked about in Scripture with forgiveness. And I think that's why people were just blown away by it. And Christians and non-Christians alike, like a lot of Christians were writing, you know, on Facebook or Twitter being like, here's the gospel, like here it is. But I, I had almost as many non-Christian follows going, hey, I, I don't know, like this is crazy, like this is unbelievable. Like it was really, um it was compelling. It was countercultural. It was it was everything uh, that people are saying it was. And
1: that that's what made it unbelievably compelling. And like you said, tear worthy. Well, that's the thing, that not everyone is saying it's the same thing. Yep. So when you say it's everything that everyone was saying that it was, that's a loaded statement. And I think part of what you're saying, I obviously totally agree with, yep. and it moved me to tears. What a what a picture of mercy and grace and forgiveness in the face of unthinkable tragedy and heartache. Right. The other piece that I, I do think we definitely need to talk about, and I encourage you to go and, and listen to the entire response from the mother, mm-hmm. that has a, an entirely different kind of central tone and ethos and point. And I think one of the things that's unfortunately really wrapped up in this is uh, her sentence. Her sentence of 10 years um, does not seem ample, in my opinion. It seems like in a lot of ways is perpetuating some real injustice. And it does complicate all of this. And I think a lot of what I'm trying to – I was just saying kind of this afternoon, I really – I really need to learn more. I need to listen more. And the irony of like having a radio show is we're expected <laughs> to talk about it right now. Sure. But even seeing some, some really thoughtful, intelligent, faithful, patient, kind people that I know saying, yeah, it's one thing to really appreciate this forgiveness for what it is, this act. It's another thing for us to really recognize, one, the year of grief that led to that moment. Yeah. And two, to stare injustice in the face and say, that's right. still not okay, though. Yeah. I think it's important
2: to realize that what makes this compelling is his act of forgiveness. It doesn't mean uh, that society should be like, hey, he let her go, like, she should be let free, right? Like, uh, there's been a lot of that going around. Like, why, uh, you know, we can't just let her off. There needs to be justice. I don't think anybody, uh, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't paint with a broad brush. I certainly don't think that she should be, and nor do I think her brother actually probably believes deep down that she should be just absolved of everything she did. Mm. Uh, He's saying, hey, this tragedy uh there's uh the good that could come out of this and and the good for you know for my brother even could be if you came to know Jesus and his love and and I want to extend you that same forgiveness. I think it's unbelievably powerful now when it comes to the sentence, it does seem light I don't know the guidelines of texas i- I rare heard on today's show she could have gotten anywhere from five to ninety nine years like that was basically the huge parameters and she got ten um seems light I didn't watch the you know the trial i don't know how the the judge came about uh what those guidelines are but you know uh for a murder conviction it seems like um but yeah i don't i i think what's important is not to go well the brother um spoke words of forgiveness therefore we none of us should be bothered by the situation right right like that's where this gets taken incorrectly, like right. uh, especially our African American brothers and sisters, like, Oh, well you should get over this because the brother somehow spoke some unbelievable words of grace that those don't have to be linked together. Absolutely should not be. I know, together. but a lot of people are linking them. And I think that's some of the the pushback that you're hearing or yeah. seeing on Twitter. I think we can celebrate everything that the brother said about Jesus and grace and forgiveness and be blown away by it. And at the same time go, uh, we've got a problem here right. that needs to be dealt with, and we need to hear people's voices who who feel that problem most deeply. I think, like you said, not only can we, but we need to hold both of
1: those as true. Well, and that's, that's exactly what makes all of this so difficult because Jesus both speaks about forgiveness and standing up against injustice, being a voice for the voiceless, yep. for the marginalized, for the exploited, for the abused. And so they both live in—it's ten- like grace— and injustice will sometimes just occupy the same yeah, space. So yeah. on one hand, I'm remembering just weeping watching this video and at the same time having to pay attention to this other part of my head and my heart saying, I still don't know that justice has actually been served for this family. Yep. yep. And realizing that I just have no tools in my toolbox to yep. really even process that, which is exactly what I meant when I said earlier is I, I, I need to learn more. I yeah. want to sit quietly more and learn from particularly my brothers and sisters of color who I think in a lot of ways have been banging the, these types of drums for a long time. Yeah. And maybe we haven't had ears to listen. And I hope I hope this is a turning point for a lot of us to actually assume a posture of learning and not you know, often do what we do and just uh, assume our first gut instinct right. is right. And I think I th- that's important. Last thing I would say, I think
2: that the, where we get in trouble with the reactions to this story is when people think that what the brother did on the stand yesterday – Wraps all of this up in a bow. I think it actually just makes it more complex. (laughs) Like it makes all the issues and the wrestling that you're talking about. And uh, and and those there are some real issues at play in this uh, in this case that need to be
1: wrestled with for sure as a culture. And I think they're more than just issues. We have to do we have to stop just simply calling them issues to be dealt with, because I think it's actually much more systemic and profound than that. And if we just sort of categorize them as like issues to deal with, I think that's some of what perpetuates some of these systems of injustice and exploitation that kind of tend to sort of self-perpetuate and that i think it's really really important thing for us to keep wrestling with well you've been listening to the common good here on aim 1160 hope for your life (laughs) you recognize that song brian uh i would not have you would not have. He but did tell us before this us, started, yeah. so yes. But name of that song.
2: If I'm just being honest, I would say that is not one I'm familiar with, but I, I believe it is uh, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Is Look that what you. it is? You're like, Neil a, like a music connoisseur. So like I just read that from the page in front of me.
1: It is a little bit like you just did that. The reason for But that I'm I just owning music.
2: the fact that I would have never have known that in a million years if we hadn't been told. Thanks, Brian. Really, really appreciate you owning
1: that. Okay. <laughs> the honesty. Anything else you want to get off your chest? Nope, that's it. Okay, great. <laughs> Uh, We're talking about breaking up. And uh, it's not a topic. I don't know that we've ever actually even tackled this on the show before. It's something that, you know, you just mentioned. You have a 15 year old daughter. I do. So this is like a conversation, I imagine. Is this a conversation you're having yet in your house? No, but it's, I'm sure the day will come. Yeah. How do you know when that conversation is like nearing its time? Like, is she, you don't have to, this is like your family, so you don't have to talk about this. Right, right. right.
2: Yeah, no, oh, is like there is, talk he is,
1: he... of boys and stuff in your house. Sure, again? but I'm
2: super thankful that I've got a daughter who has like this great group of girlfriends, and they just kind of hang out with each other. <laughs> but, but that eventually, as we know, exactly, like that, you know, exactly, evolves into and to see other friends of hers in her age group dating, it, and now that I've got a kid that age, I'm like, oh my goodness! Really? But, but then you and I have also been youth pastors watching these uh-huh. relationships, these. You know the inevitable one that starts on the
1: mission trip or starts on the retreat. That's Why we went on mission trips. <laughs> <laughs> Christian Tinder before Tinder. <laughs> no, not Tinder. You got to pick a less, a I less I don't even option. know what they all are. I've been married twenty years, man. I don't even know them. You know, na- John. What is the likelihood that Brian actually doesn't know Christian Mingle? What Tinder is? How about yes. Christian Mingle?
2: The odds that he doesn't know what it is? Yeah.
3: Oh, he's got to know what it
1: is. <laughs> I know what it is in concept. I've never been on the site. Well, yeah, I've never neither s- have I. I don't know uh, how it works. Tinder's <laughs> more exclusively for like just hooking up. It literally oh. is. This, that's why I wanted but to go for more there's PG. There's
3: Bumble that's a little bit more specific. You can filter out like religious
2: preferences. Height, uh, tell us, stuff.
1: tell us more. Tell time. us more, John. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah, one is
2: this. open? Which one is open on your desktop <laughs> right now? Oh, yeah. what, what's your username? <laughs> John, <laughs> you somehow got the first at name. John on Bumble no, it's a
3: first name basis. Oh, it is. Uh, yeah. Wait a minute. We're you gonna. Don't, you don't learn their last name. It's just first name and age. I think that's what pops up on the window. That actually
2: makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> John, for their, for their
1: there's safety, some
3: anonymity. Just some. so
1: that that one's called Wit. Wh- what Bumble? And I don't Bumble. know why. Bumble. Yeah, can you figure out why they named that Bumble? Because that does not seem like a very appealing Tinder. Date makes
3: does, wait. Does Tinder make that? What is Tinder? Is that like a Kind of like a kindling fire. Yeah, t- tinder is the
1: small wood that gets the spark going. Right. Okay. But, but John, what about
2: what are our thoughts on Christian Mingle? Don't you have to pay for that? <laughs> <laughs> there are your thoughts. <laughs> John's like, I really want to meet someone, but I don't want to have to pay I don't it for want it. to pay the eleven dollars right. That's I,
3: not a very romantic story. So I started a subscription. And that's how I met your mother. I,
2: but there's not. Is that any worse than I got onto a free
3: website? <laughs> just meet someone naturally and don't rush. To it, be
1: fair, know. I don't know. I actually, I mean, I was, I believed the same thing. I oh. think I think the days of that being a uh, hang up are almost all but gone. I am amazed by the number of people I've oh, met yeah. who,
2: have, who are now married who met online like that. And I believe it's Christian Mingle where if you get married after meeting on their site, they, they send you a hat. They send you a hat? I believe that is true. What a weird thing to know, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found that out from somebody who
1: got the hat. Yeah, a weird just,
3: thing to send. I yeah. just
1: read an article about a church. Uh, they they had a whole talk on cohabitation, and they're sort of challenging people In on Texas. And, yes. In Texas, that's right. Yes. And they said, if you enroll in this like 90-day course, and at the end of it, you decide to get married, we'll pay for your wedding. And they did like a mass. It was like 24 couples, 50, 40, 48 people on stage. They did a whole big ceremony, yep. and they, they even, if someone was cohabitating, they... Said they would pay for your first month rent if you you know yep. were able to change that situation yep. and I don't know I thought that was a pretty interesting It's the take. old definition of putting their money where your mouth is yeah like for a right church to do that is
2: really impressive and they gave them
1: counseling sent them up with like a, a mentor couple to like walk with oh him I didn't find, even like, know like, that it was part. A very
2: thorough process because think like, now if you got up and preached a sermon and just railed you know because you're Mister Fire and Brimstone so if you just yeah, railed obviously, about every message if you <laughs> if you just railed about cohabitation and people living with each other but then just left it at that. Right. And you're sitting out there going, hey, well, I live with my girlfriend. I'm actually really convicted, but right. I don't have any money. Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know how to
1: navigate this. Well, you could do what they did in Russia. Do you hear about this? No. Uh, no. There's a small town in Russia. The priests were upset by the level of drinking and the level of fornicating. Okay. So they went up in a plane, and they dumped gallons of holy water all over their little town. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. In an effort to stop the drinking and the fornicating, which... Do we, it, do we have any results? Do we have any of uh, any? Uh, yeah, I imagine terror from the people. <laughs> if I'm out walking and it's a clear day and my there's water falling from the sky and I see a plane, I'm not assuming that's holy priest water. priest is up there yeah. just wagging his fingers. Yeah, stop fornicating. <laughs> that's why I actually really appreciated the story out of Texas. Cause yes. It was like, all right. I mean, I don't know how I feel about the mass wedding thing, but right. they're literally they like set you up. with It was like a 90-day course and a mentor couple, and they'd pay for the ceremony and photographs. And if you moved out, they pay for the first month's rent. You know, it, while you're in the midst of this process. But even if you didn't decide to move out, they'd still counsel you and walk alongside you. And I thought, okay, yeah. By and large, I think I think that's not bad. Actually, yep. it's a church, like you're saying, putting its money where its mouth is. Absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, this article we had in front of us about breaking. Oh, we're
2: up. not going to do this. You know they're get up. <laughs> get- <laughs> it is the one thing I would want to say, and especially for parents out there with young kids, like. They think every first boyfriend or girlfriend is the person they're going to marry. Right. And they like get so wrapped up. And I do uh, – like, I dated when I was in high school. I actually, what? Yeah, I know.
1: I thought you were a Christian. I
2: actually like now how much less pressure there seems to be in a lot of the high schools I know of where they're on dating, like being exclusive. Like, Yeah. Um, but still, it can cause such issues. Like, I, I just feel like uh, it is something – we joked about it before, but it is something we need to talk our kids through. Cause as a youth pastor, I remember yeah. – the kids who are dating, and it was like it was always the drama, and it was always oh, this, constant. and you just wanted to yes. be like, "Oh, there's some, there's a better way here." So I'm not yeah. Mr. Joshua Harris, obviously. Like I kissed dating goodbye <laughs>
1: too soon, <laughs> too soon. i just say obviously, and then pointed at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "See, <laughs> you said Mr. Joshua Harris like the two of you are married now." I thought that's the joke. Too you're soon, thinking. too no. soon. Uh, but uh, I do think that
2: that there is uh, a lot of damage that can be done in high school and into college when it's like when dating happens too fast, when it's like becomes too serious. And I learned that. So I wish I knew that when I was in high school and college. Right. right. uh, But I certainly saw that so often as a youth pastor. I'm sure you
1: did too, that now as a dad, I want to have my radar up on that. Well, and it was all the pressure too like, if any of our friends were dating, like, gosh, I don't even know that I'm ready, but now I have Have to to. be ready because it seems like, you remember even, like, couple skate at the roller rink? <laughs> yes. you got caught... That's dating yourself Oh, right there. <laughs> man. Yeah, but not having a couple? Yeah. I honestly remember that being devastating. Oh, that's funny. And I, I think it, uh, yeah. Don't tell me she's not worth crying for what came on, and I would just go and cry. Just, <laughs> just, oh, boy. I missed oh, look, my window. I missed my chance. There's Ian over there by the foosball table again. <laughs> don't, don't worry. He's homeschooled. He um homeschooled. All right, well, Brian and I are going to reconvene at the break and figure out if we're going to do this article or if we're just going to move on <laughs> with the I feel like that was more helpful to talk about that, and now we got a window in the Johns over there, too. That's true. Let's talk about that if a little bit If you meet more a
2: John next. on Bumble, mm,
1: Age 26? 20... Five? 26? John, how old are you? I'm
3: no longer on Bumble. Oh,
1: oh. as of three minutes ago. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> we're going to bring her into the studio for the next segment here, coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Okay, John. Can we just never have that song again? <laughs> that every single hurts time, my head. every single time, Brian and I look at each other like, "Oh, oh, what, the sky is falling. Something's not. Something's not right."
3: Well, it, yeah, it is a bit abrasive. A, so bit, a abrasive. bit abrasive.
1: That, that's pretty much the slogan of this show. <laughs> yeah, the bottom of the hour is a little
2: <laughs> like, jeez. Come to the common good. A, a bit, bit abrasive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not too abrasive. We're more the Bumble, not the Christian Mingle. Or the, the Tinder. The, not the Tinder. This is a weird conversation if people were not with us in the last segment. Yeah, people are honing in right on this story. Mm-hmm. None of that makes any sense, and people are probably used to that by now. Uh, anyway, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash the Common Good. Also, if you're a podcaster... You hit that little share button, just send it to... You know what? This would be a fun game this week. Okay. Hit share and then type in a phone number at random. Someone <laughs> you don't know and just say, check these guys out. And the person will be like, wrong number. And they're like, no, it's right number. Nope. The Lord wanted you to have this. Um, this is the right number. <laughs> this is the right- I know exactly what I'm doing. Just double down. All right. So uh, this is already on the Facebook page but it says, report projects 35 million youth to leave Christianity by 2050. Thirty-five million youth to leave Christianity by 2050. What's going on here? It is a crazy story. It says 35 million youth raised in Christian
2: families are projected to disaffiliate from Christianity by the year 2050, uh, and then it goes on to talk about uh, youth ministry leader Greg Steer from uh, what's his organization? Dare to Share. Dare to Share. Yeah. Uh, believes churches can't settle for simply slowing uh, down the b- the b- the bleeding. So it's a 131 page report titled "The Great Opportunity." is based on reviews of different reports and surveys examining millennial attitudes toward religion and relies most heavily on four major research areas. And so they've taken these reports like the Pew Research Center's Religious Landscape Study, the Baylor Religion Study, uh, Public Religion Research Institute, Gallup Annual Religion Surveys, and they've kind of put them together and tried to say what what's coming, what is coming down the road. And it says, based on those primary data sources – We built out religious switching scenarios for the next 30 years using the most up-to-date switching and attitudinal data, harmonizing assumptions across primary data resources. And their projection, uh, it says Christianity in America will make up just 59% of the country's population by 2050 compared to 73% today. Meanwhile, the base case indicates that the population of the religiously unaffiliated will double to 30% of the total population in 2050. Taking into account a worst-case scenario, the report projects that as many as 42 million people raised in Christian homes will disaffiliate from Christianity by 2050. Uh, so there's a lot there. There is a lot in that. So what do you think about those numbers? Are they surprising to you? Is it a little bit of a overstatement? What do you think? It's
1: not surprising to me. What is surprising is that he said 73% today consider themselves Christians in America. Mm-hmm. That seems... Uh, enormously high. It might be 73%. Does that seem high to you? Uh, It's the old uh, who is uh,
2: deciding, you know, that's self-identification, right? And so that becomes very cultural. So I'm with you. It seems high for how we would probably define. What
1: what do you mean by self-identification? You think 73% self-identify as Christians?
2: mm, That's a good question. I think, in the most generic of terms, have given uh, different choices, although most of the time now we hear that that's lower. So now that I think about it, that does seem high.
1: Yeah, I wish... 73% seems high. That seems insanely high to me. The thing that... Okay, so that aside, if his data is even remotely close with regards to his projection for how many youth will be leaving, he says that means at least 215,000 churches will need to be planted by 2050 just to maintain the status quo. So that's an odd... Detail to include that seems like an insane if you're saying that we have this insane. massive decline, right? But yeah. just to maintain the status quo, 215,000 will need to be planted by 2050. As a church planner, does that surprise you? Does that seem <laughs> that does. does it? What about that is most jarring to you? Because that implies that almost that many
2: churches, if you're just talking about the status quo, that means a lot of churches are closing, right? 215,000. I know it's spread across the country. That still seems like a lot to me. Um. Yeah, it still seems like a lot. I think some of the data here just feels high, but I think whether it's high or not, the point is the same. Uh, whether the number is right, whether the number is thirty-five million or twenty million, it's saying the trajectory of of younger people in our in our culture is, especially those raised in Christian uh, homes. Uh, is moving away from the faith, and I think that 's a huge red flag, but also a huge opportunity at the same time but it 's a it 's a huge red flag for us as parents and pastors and churches and youth pastors to go well what then stems this tide? Why is this happening what do we what do we even do about this
1: Is this even new though isn 't this like every like next generation young generation is leaving at least for a season the faith of their parents. It does. It doesn't, though.
2: It feels like the numbers are getting higher and higher in the With last couple of years. I mean, mm, but now there's the, the people, you know, you think of Stetzer stuff about uh, the number of people increasingly calling themselves nuns. And that's that's grown up from that's way higher than in any generation in the past. Yeah, I think it's unequivocal that our culture, our country uh, is becoming less. Mm, I'm going to use air quotes and just say religious um, or uh, certainly less Christian, uh, self-identified. And so I would say, but st- uh, uh, Greg Steer goes on to say that, that you can look at that as like the sky is falling or you can look at that as huge opportunity and say, um, okay, if if uh, if there is a tide going against you, that seems to be often in the history where, where Christianity seems to uh, revive and there seems to be revival that comes out. And he's particularly focused on young people and he makes the point, Uh, That in some of the great revivals across history, it was started in uh, with the youth of the of the culture. And so he's trying to paint a picture saying, hey, let's not like go, Okay, well, our culture is going to hell. There's nothing. No, no hope. He's saying, let's allow this for let's allow this kind of data and these kind of things to cause us to go. Are there things we need to do differently? Are there things that the church is just getting wrong? What's causing this? And I think he's trying to say, let's use this kind of data to ask those kind of hard questions. So what do you think we're getting wrong? Ah, uh, that's, I think the whole, uh, I think with adults and students, we're probably, um, you and I've talked about this before, we probably aren't uh, doing discipleship great. I don't, I'm still not sure that a lot of churches know exactly what that looks like. Not that there isn't exactly what that looks like. Yeah, what, do you, what like. do you mean by that? Can you dig a little deeper on that? Yeah, I think we do – this is painting with a really broad brush, but I think as churches, big and small, I think we do big gathering really well, and let's get people in, let's get people in. And then I still think – when I talk to a lot of pastors, myself included, it's what are we doing to grow people? And I think when you take that down to the youth ministry level, right, Uh, I did this as a youth pastor. Lots of pizza, lots of games, lots of teaching, and those are all good things, uh, but are there places kids can be asking the hard questions? Are there places they're being formed? And and I think we – Sometimes we do that well. Sometimes we not. I just, I think asking the whole Eugene Peterson a long obedience in the in the same direction. Uh, I'm I'm not sure we as churches always do that really well. And so, what does that look like in the future? Uh, what role has been doing that poorly or not as well? What What are
1: the fruits of that that we're seeing now? It's funny that you quote Peterson at the end there because I actually think one of the things the church maybe to a fault does well is this long obedience in the same direction and an unwillingness to ever change directions. Mm. I I think sometimes where we get stuck is, hey, this worked in the 90s. There you go. This worked even a decade ago. You know, I think it's impossible to not talk about authenticity. I think young people, all their radars are up when it comes to don't give me the polish. Don't give me the canned answer. Like, I want something real. But I also wonder if part of what he's saying is, hey, the stuff that did legitimately work 30 years ago and there's nothing wrong with that isn't working now churches as you and I both know are often notoriously slow to change Very slow. and they're the other I mean the opposite end can be true as well they're yeah. always changing and they you know a, a church never knows what its identity is but I, I wonder if part of the struggle is an inability to course correct an inability to say yeah man this church was built on Wednesday evening youth group mm-hmm. but that's just not engaging this next generation yeah. in fact we're going to take an entirely different approach. Yep. I could see there being an uproar. I could see all sorts of, of disagreements and I could see that being a real issue. Yeah. And let's let's also
2: acknowledge the elephant in the room. that There are a lot of young people leaving Christianity over the time because of how Christians have acted in our culture and yep. the tie that we've made to politics and some of the uh, things that I think the next generation looks at of my generation and others and doesn't really like and yep. sees hypocrisy. And I think we can't
1: ignore that as well. I think you're right. Well, coming up next, uh, a blog by pretty much the third host of the show, Scott Saul. <laughs> it's been too long. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote, When Pastors Get Lonely and Discouraged, something Brian and I have never struggled with, but we're assuming <laughs> other pastors. All those other pastors out there. Out there. <laughs> this is just for their benefit, right? <laughs> when Pastors Get Lonely and Discouraged, that's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are both pastors. We've mentioned that a couple of times. Usually <laughs> that's met by people going, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you? <laughs> do you get that, by the way? I don't know if you get that as often as I do. Yes. You do? Yeah. Why? What, what do you think is behind that? Are people shock that you're a pastor. I think people, uh, it, less I think
2: than in past generations, but I still think that people... There's this reverence to clergy in general uh, and pastors (laughs) in general, like kind of a, and I I don't think that, like, I think you and I are both pretty uh, irreverent. It's it's the weirdest way to put it, but I've had more people say to me over the years, you just seem pretty normal. And you're like, what does that 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 say about like your history with pastors or this or that? And it's always weird. so. I do get
1: that, and then you and I get it a lot around
2: this radio station, <laughs> or other reasons yes. that
1: we can't mention here. Uh, so okay, so Scott Sauls, who is a pastor, yes, also an author and a blogger and a pretty decent Twitterer. Uh, yep. so he's we've actually I think referenced the number of his blogs here on the show. We have. He wrote one that kind of resonates because you and I, you know, we are we're husbands and dads and citizens, but we're also pastors. So a lot of times we we kind of think through a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show through that lens. Yeah. And uh, there's an article that you found, and you were telling me that you've actually shared this with a number of people. So it really resonated with you. It did. When pastors get lonely and discouraged. Talk, yeah. Talk to us about it. So Saul's
2: jumps in here. And again, it's at Scott Saul's, dot com. It's a great blog that he, he regularly blogs and, uh Saul's in here speaks of the loneliness and discouragement that can come of the pastors. And he starts his first paragraph with something that has maybe been one of the hardest lessons I've learned as a pastor. Hmm. And that is... Uh, Well, let me just read the first paragraph. He says, when I was studying to go into ministry, one of the professors told us aspiring pastors that we should never expect to have close friends in the churches that we lead. It's always best, the professor said, to seek out friendships with people who are not as a part of our churches. And he goes on to say how mad that made him. Mm -hmm. Like, he got mad. uh, And then he goes, having now served over two decades in pastoral ministry, I like that he says this, I still resist the professor's advice that pastors should seek their primary community outside of their own churches. Uh, I remain committed. And he goes on to say, I remain committed to be close friends, at people in the church. But then he says, "Yet from a pa- practical and experiential standpoint, I understand why the professor would advise us in this way. Mm-hmm. He says, I've known the pain of broken friendships in the church. Stick around for any length of time. And you likely will, too, if you haven't already. And I don't know if you have felt that, man, but like I've always been the guy that's like I'm I am family with these people. I am doing life with these. Like these are going to be my best friends. And some of my best friends are in my church. Really? And some of my best friends are also people who've left my church. And that relationship has been broken, not because I was like, well, I can't be your friend. You left my church, but Mm -hmm. because I'm the pastor. Yeah. And, and it has caused such, um, such, uh, acute pain like it's yeah. hard when anybody leaves your church right but when it's like somebody you're like wait but we were buddies like hold right. on and they're like you, legitimate but and they tend to be the loudest on the way out the door you're like wait i don't wait what just happened here oh, and not like move away but like mm, i'm gonna go to that church now and yep. you're like oh and that probably ended our friendship right. and you might be out there thinking well it doesn't have to end your friendship i'm just saying it does like it doesn't have to and over time you can kind of come back but there's just a seismic shift there that pastors yeah. have to deal with. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I it's have something that's been hard for me. I would say,
1: yeah, my experience, you know, as I've mentioned before on the show, at you know my first church out of college was very unique, right? So I was the youth pastor, yep. and then we went through this catastrophic season with the senior and founding pastor, and then a, a weird yep. kind of dance for a while, and then when I became lead pastor. There were some people that legitimately and with good reason were like, "Nah, he's too young. Yep. He's too young." So people who were, like in my in my sense, deeply embedded, they're like family, and weren't yeah. leaving for any sort of scandalous yep. reason. they're like, oh, "We just think he's he's probably too young to leave. Yep. And even that was sort of like a weird, "Oh, so and so is not here anymore. Oh, I wish I had known." Like there was a there, an odd dance there and I had a, a mentor and a professor kind of say the same thing that he's saying here. The, yep. the the importance of seeking close intimate relationships with people, he would say, outside your orbit. Yeah. That you can speak honestly about and with and not have to worry about, oh, now they're going to have an opinion about this other person. Yeah. Like I've been, and now 15, 16 years later, I'm blessed that a number of those guys are still in my life yep. that have just, and they have all this history now. Mm-hmm. So then when I bring something that's really weighing on, in on me, they they bring all this like knowledge yep. and context with them. And that's been really great. I've been really I've been really grateful for that. But uh I don't know, I I think that there is some wisdom to this, there although is. I rail against this in the same way. I love that Sauls then
2: because when I'm reading it, I was like, oh, is he about to tell me I shouldn't have friends? But he's like, I still fight against this, yeah, but I get it. Yes. And I'd say that's where I'm at. Like I'm gonna fight for this. I'm gonna fight to have friendships. Right. I don't want to see this as a job. But me now versus five, six, seven years totally. ago, I get it. Like, I get it so much more. And that's painful. That's hard. He then goes on to also talk about this concept of anti-climax. And uh, again, being as a pastor, but we all feel this in various areas of our life of like, you have all these dreams and you're like, we're going to change the world and we're praying for this. And and then uh, there's sort of an anti-climax in ministry that he says that can be so hard on the heart. And what do we do with this? That. Uh, In spite of, he writes this, in spite of spending countless hours of prayer that God would bring revival and renewal to your church, the church remains stunted in its growth, mundane in its ministry, lukewarm in its love, invisible in its impact, and held back by the demands and drama of the most narcissistic and divisive members. Boom. And so he goes on to then say this is also a hard one to wrestle with, that you have these dreams. How do you hold on to these dreams when they're not happening? And it's not even like, I mean, this guy's in a growing church. Like, this is not like he's church is slowly dying right but he's saying you know you've got kind of you you have these dreams do you uh how do you not succumb to just kind of going ah eh, you know church is just going to be church and it's the way it's
1: going to go well let me i i just got to read this rather yeah. than i think this is so much better than anything that i would say he says in my own moments of pastoral discouragement and isolation i have disciplined myself to remember that jesus christ who is not an imperfect leader like me but a perfect one Faithfully and prayerfully poured everything that he had into his twelve disciples for a solid three years. Mm -hmm. And what was his return on his investment? Judas betrayed him for a handful of coins. (laughs) Peter denied him three times. His three closest friends fell asleep when he asked them for prayer. And at the moment when he needed them most, they all abandoned him and left him to die alone. How must Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, have felt each time that he referred to his closest friends as you who are of little faith. As if this weren't enough to discourage with more than 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection, Jesus had only 120 followers after he rose from the dead. Mm. If the king of all kings, the governor of all governors, the boss of all bosses— and the leader of all leaders who did yeah. everything in perfection and was so quote successful in his mission that even that even conquered death would undergo anticlimax then we should certainly expect the same for ourselves wow that'll preach that is powerful and i
2: love what he says near the end he says although it's sometimes hard to believe that your work done for god's glory has enduring significance it absolutely does what you're doing matters there's so much more than meets the eye That's don't right. ever forget that really i needed good. to read that this was Uh, This was for me the right time
1: to read that, so I thought it'd be good for us to share it. And I definitely see why you would share that with other people, man. That's really encouraging. Well, we'd love to know what you think and what you do when you face discouragement. These are the kinds of stories that we love kind of taking a deep dive into, and I'm sure we'll talk about a whole lot more in the future. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
0: It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name, Ian Michael Simpkins. His name, Brian you got it. James. Yes. Um, Woo. Yes. We're real friends. Our relationship just went to another level. We like just one-upped or. Ian uh, Michael. Is that what you said? How did you not know that? Nah, we just got ratcheted back down to. Like, what did you say? Ian Michael. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I was re- I was saying I know it. Mm, your face doesn't say you know it. I know it. I know it. Uh, <laughs> Modest your, name, your,
2: your name has a great ring to it. It has. And I mean this in a compliment. Like. The, the the combo of Ian Michael sounds like do you remember like in the '90s on like nine hundred two and zero or Saved by the Bell they always went by three names oh yeah and like Ian Michael Simpkins. like Brian James ah. Fromm doesn't sound like at all that could have been like a child I star think it could have been but Ian Michael Simkins totally sounds really? like it would have worked is it because you're thinking of the actor Ian Michael Black no but I didn't see but that just confirms <laughs> what, what I'm saying well, it I is thought- yeah it is something I've learned now that my kids uh, they're getting older, but they still kind of watch the Disney Channel a lot, like some of the, more of the shows, you know, like Jesse or those kind of shows. And for some reason, all the child actors always go by three names. That's weird. It's really weird. It? But they used to
1: with the, with 90210 and Saved by the Bell, all of those. They always did. Well, what I thought you were going to say is Ian Michael's got a good ring to be yelled at. And I would say you are correct. Yes. Because that's what my mom would say when I was in trouble. <laughs> Ian Michael. Can you hear it? Oh, totally. It's like sending shivers yep. down my spine just yes. hearing you say it. That's how you <laughs> knew. Like Ian was like, okay. We're still okay. Ian Michael, we're we're in trouble. So if I feel like you're talking too much and I want to get up, like, uh, Ian Michael, you need to just... <laughs> yeah, that's going to lose its luster real quick, I think. I don't know. Maybe if you add, like, a Z-snap or something. Make Ian it Michael sassy. is no longer on the show because he was tired of... <laughs> of Brian Fromm calling him Ian Michael. All right, so here's, here's a story with, again, a whole bunch of unfortunate twists. Uh, I actually had plans to talk about this, and then I saw... An update to the story, and I thought, okay, well now we definitely have to talk about it. So uh, the story is about this this girl who accused some boys of pinning her down and and cutting her hair. Later, comes out that she made the whole story up. So there was this outrage by the story, um, understandably, and and then I don't I don't quite know how we ended up getting to. It sounds like she told her parents first that she actually cut her hair herself and that these boys didn't right. do that. And I'd love to, first off, just kind of get your reactions to the the general gist of the story. And then I want to get into the weeds a little bit about some of how we consume media and jump to conclusions. And, and what about honesty, but just yeah, where do you land in general, just with the story in the first place? Yeah, I, I
2: did read this story and it made me sad because she's 12. First right, of all, like right. there's, she's a there's kid. she's 12 years old and I want to cut some slack to a 12 year old. Right? Like I want to, <laughs> I want to, uh, I want to show some grace to a 12 year old and I want to start there Uh, because, you know, if this was a twenty one, twenty four, I'd be like, we've got some real psychological problems here. Someone who's crying out for attention, like a a
1: Jesse Smollett, Jesse
2: Smollett, a Duke lacrosse, all these kinds of things. Uh, 12 years old, this still screen. Like if I'm the parent here, I'm going, uh Oh, what's going yeah, on. Right. But I don't want to attribute to her what I would to an adult. So I want to start there yep. as Agreed. a 12 year old. But I do think it says a lot about our media and a culture. I don't know if you remember the story came out, the headline, uh, even though obviously she had nothing to do with it. The headline was that this is where Mike Pence's, uh, uh, wife teaches. And you're, right. What does that have to do with the story? Like that's a Christian school and there must be something about this school, that's, you know, raising these kids to be racist, to cut this uh, African-American girl's hair uh, or whatever else. And so, um, you know, I, I do think it is, again, an example of how we just jump on stories uh, or not we. But, you know, the, the greater media tends to jump on stories and create the narrative that they want created uh, and they kind of use the story to create it. And so, you know, again, I want to show grace to the girl and not be like, oh, she should, you know, she needs to be punished. Well. She's 12. There's something psychological going on here, whether it be a cry for attention or something else uh, that hopefully her parents and probably a psychiatrist can get at. Um, But, yeah, I do think it causes a lot about truth telling because, you know, these things do happen. This bullying and other things that, you know, unfortunately, we've seen when there's high profile cases that turn out to be lies, it becomes harder for people to believe the truth if they don't want to believe the truth. And so this is another Another great example also about the importance of truth.
1: So, what do you do with it then? Because I, I think it's, I mean, at the very end of this, it says, okay, because of her age, they're no longer using her name or the names of her family, which I totally get. And we've mentioned before, we were both youth pastors. I don't know if you ever dealt with anything like this in your youth ministry. I, don't think so. uh, I have. Tell me about it. And I actually can't. Oh, but there, so it was that it was, bad. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. But, I gotcha. It, but it was certainly a, it was claiming something had been done. Gotcha. And then later we discovered that it actually did hadn't been done at all. And I think in part of the statement from the family, it says to the broader community who rallied in such passionate support for our daughter, we apologize for betraying your trust, mm-hmm. which I, I appreciate the contrition of this apology. The other part is tough because if you're a parent, which you are, and I am, mm-hmm. yep. I almost, like, I don't know that I necessarily see what the parents did as betraying a trust. If my 12 year old told me with tears in their eyes, this thing happened, for better or for worse, I'd be inclined to believe them. there'd be some yes. due diligence there for sure, but it wasn't like, "Hey, mom, I have a great plan. Oh, we can <laughs> sucker everyone in this community." Yeah. Um, so then you, so then you. Uh, now I'm grieving for my kid. I'm also kind of grieving for whatever led them to think this was okay. Yep. I imagine there's all sorts of guilt as a parent. Like, oh my gosh, I thought I raised them to, to know better than to do this, and then there's all sorts of like racial components that have to be talked about. Because I remember when I first saw the first break of the story i was livid mm. i was livid and there's all sorts of other layers there too because i was like oh this happened at a christian school so this idea that like yep oh bullying's not happening in christian schools right oh put yep. your kid in a christian school and they'll be safe from all these other things that happen you know in governmental schools yep. or whatever that kind of stuff can be that that is an easy narrative that you know i was on the seat that, that's not totally true but then it comes out that she's lying and I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a takeaway in your mind for this or if there's a lesson to be learned or what do you, what do you do? with?
2: Yeah. Those? I think you bring up some really good points. And I think that on the parent side, I would totally try to take the bullets from my kid. Yes. And that's why I'd be like, we're sorry yes, we're doing totally. this. Um, you know, I do think that the, that the greater uh, lesson, because we've learned it now, well, obviously we haven't learned it. We've talked about it on many different occasions. And that is uh, that the, the importance of truth for the Christ follower that, that we need to be men and women of truth. And that uh, when these types of stories are made up and again, we're giving her grace because she's 12, but like you said, we have a laundry list of adults who've done this, uh, that when we make up stories like this for attention, that that like play on these things that are really sensitive within our culture, yeah. uh, bullying, racism, whatever else it might be, uh, sexual abuse uh, and other things. When we, when when people make those stories up uh, the, it becomes unfortunately gasoline and fodder for people not to believe the next one. Right. That's probably true. We know most of the time people report these types of things, sexual abuse, bullying, other things. They're telling the truth, but but it's when they're not that, that these things kind of break down the Jesse Smollett case for, uh, as a great example. And so, uh, you know, I hope this girl gets the help she needs. This is a cry for help. Yeah. And as any parent, um knows that that when your kid does something this dramatic yeah. there there is there is some deep seated woundedness and some crying out uh that hopefully they can get her the help that she needs in order to deal with that, but I do think it it does highlight some issues within our culture that I think are important to some of those that
1: i mentioned do Do you think that media has responded the way that you thought it would in this case in yeah. particular yeah I I've heard a lot more about the
2: story when it came out than when it was not than when right. it was corrected. That's kind of what I'm getting. At. I I didn't, and maybe I just didn't watch the news that day. But you know, that was a really big story when it first came out, and then yeah. it's almost like a, hey, by the way, correction, right? <laughs> right. And because kinda. I think it it you know it drives clicks and it drives narratives that that the correction doesn't help so much, and so that was at least. That's the feel I got just anecdotally you know, I remember it being a lot bigger on my Twitter feed or on the Today Show or
1: whatever else when that story came out than Mm. when it proved to not be true. And that's where it gets really tricky for me because again, we're talking about a children involving kids. And when we try to weaponize stories about kids, that I think gets really, really tricky too. And it makes me think of the Covington school, you know, from months ago now where it was, you know, a bit of information and then everyone was screaming that narrative and then a bit more information and then The other side was screaming the other narrative, and I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, this story is much different than that scenario. But it does make me, at the very least, to be honest, the takeaway is not that profound for me. It's teaching me some patience when consuming media. Good call. Maybe there's maybe this isn't all of it. Yep. And that doesn't mean being inactive all the time, but at least saying, okay, there, it's this stuff is more important than just simply clicking on whatever clickbait I find and assuming it's Bible, right? Assuming it's law, and I think that is. Easier said than done Because everything's moving at a million miles an hour And that temptation Is kind of ever present Alright, coming up next uh, this, this one sounds like fun Five things <laughs> Pastors need to stop doing Immediately Hopefully one of them Isn't a radio show radio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Number six right Either way the- Yeah, right That's what's coming up next Here on the Common Good On AM 1160 Hope for your life uh, Hey everybody That music is pumping me up Right now this is me and my pump-up boys. <laughs> <laughs> Brian doesn't buy it. The pump-up boys. <laughs> That's about as pumped as I get. Uh, all right. You can find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. I mentioned uh, a story that we're going to do called Five Things Passers Need to Stop Doing Immediately, which is giving me a panic attack. So this is a fun segment for us. to. I haven't actually read this yet, so we're going to kind of. I will be honest, though. I don't love the way it starts. Can I just be honest? Go for it. Tell us why. Go uh, ahead and it says, start it and tell us why. Pastors, we're not just cheerleaders. We are game changers. Mm. That already threw that already me. You're already like, against it. I was like, no pressure, man. <laughs> hey, your your job is to change the game. <laughs> I don't know that I buy that. But sure. he does go on to unpack it a little bit, and uh, I have skimmed it, so I have a general sense of his direction. But I'd love to know, first off, why were you drawn to this in the first place? And then we'll, we'll get into the list. Yeah, he goes on to say we are called to stir and to convict, so that change takes place.
2: Uh, now gr- the Holy Spirit convicts. There you go. Granted, there are many wonderful pastors and churches. He says, uh, but they've lost the compass of truth. Ooh, that's a big statement. Hmm. You played bass in Compass of Truth. <laughs> <laughs> many are more concerned with wine tasting. Wow, this is this is a big one. Uh, he, what? He says, many of the pastors are more concerned with about wine tasting and craft beers than truly seeking the heart of God. This feels
1: like it's targeted to a very specific person. <laughs> I don't like wine. Many of our is Grant. <laughs> <laughs> many of a
2: church up the street from
1: mine right now.
2: <laughs> you, we'll be uh,
1: reading Carl. Uh,
2: <laughs> I do like he says, this is not a letter of rebuke. <laughs> it, sounds <laughs> it sounds like it like <laughs> But a tear-stained plea that we once again seek the heart of God. So here's five issues he suggests pastors need to stop doing. So... While we may not like the intro, let's see what we think about the five. Uh, Number one, stop watering down the gospel. The truth is often watered down in the hope of not offending members and building a large audience. Judgment is never mentioned and repentance is rarely sought. We want to build a church rather than break a heart, be politically correct rather than biblically correct, coddle and comfort rather than stir and convict. The power of the gospel is found in the truth about the gospel. The edited version does not change lives Uh, You just let out a a sigh. I want to. Oh, did I? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Are we on the air? Respond. (laughs) Uh, Is that what that light means? (laughs) Again, uh, this is more of a hobby horse than anything. Judgment is never mentioned. I feel like way to not speak in imperatives, man. (laughs) (laughs) This church that I'm not naming specifically, judgment's never mentioned. I do have to say, though, I said it a little tongue in cheek earlier. um, It's not the pastor's job to stir and convict. Mm that's just not that's not anywhere in scripture i think when we deliver the gospel faithfully it will stir and convict yeah. i think i think the, the new testament is fairly clear actually that the holy spirit convicts. is the one that stirs and yeah. convicts we could be stirring like you know pursue the craft of good sermon giving i think that's important and will often lead to people being stirred and convicted but i think man to bear the weight of being the one it's hard who stirs and convicts. Yeah, when people aren't stirred and/or convicted, I'm somehow a failure as a pastor. I don't. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I here's the other thing, and I know that I probably am friends with
2: pastors that you know I tend to agree with or tend to be you know. Yeah, but I don't. I do feel like there is this uh, this assumption that pastors in our culture water down the gospel. I don't really know many who do. Right. <laughs> I don't Same. look around at my my fr- my brethren, if you will, and be like, man, am I the only one trying not to water this down and be politically correct? I actually think that sometimes we ha- we err in the other way. <laughs> and, I, I,
1: and I assume it is happening.
2: I know yeah. that it is. And uh, I think for sure. I think he's denomination. right to yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Number two. All right. Stop focusing only on encouragement. But I want to. We all need encouragement. That's a given. But most people feel beaten down because they're not hearing more about repentance most people feel beaten down because they're not hearing more about repentance. Repent and experience times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, Acts 3 says. To truly help people, we must preach the difficult truth as well as the joyful ones. Preach the cross and the new life. Preach hell and preach heaven. Preach damnation and preach salvation. Preach sin and preach grace. Preach wrath and love. Uh, and he keeps coupling as we go. It is the love of God that compels us to share all of his truth. So stop focusing only on encouragement. Ian, give me your thoughts. Number three.
1: <laughs> no, you want me to respond to that I one? I do. I do. I'm enjoying your faces. Um, I feel like the rest of this is going to be fairly predictable. I feel like mm-hmm. I've met this guy before. <laughs> like, if people are leaving smiling, you did it wrong. Yeah, i got to me is, and I, again, get what he's saying. It's the same. It's not the same. It's similar to with parenting, though. Like, sometimes, hey, we have to have a hard family conversation. Yep. That wasn't okay. That didn't go well. Like, we got to have that, obviously. But this idea, uh, I, again, maybe we're in the wrong circles. I don't know a lot of pastors that are only preaching encouragement. Mm. I know a lot of faithful men and women that are saying, yeah, we're really missing the mark here. We're really screwing yeah. up. And yeah. Jesus calls us to obedience. He calls us to full-life apprenticeship. I, I yep. That seems to be the vast majority of people that I know. And let me encourage you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> A little right. bit of both, yeah. right?
2: Number three. Uh, stop getting your message from pop psychology or the latest fad. All of us must return to the prayer closet where brokenness, humility and full surrender take place. God prepares the messenger before we prepare the message without prayer. The church becomes a graveyard, not an embattled army. Uh, EM bound says prayers, praise and prayer are stifled where worship is uh, dead. So he basically says, uh, you, Pastors need to get back to being very prayerful over their messages rather than, he says, getting their message from pop, pop psychology or the lazed
1: fad. Uh, again, I feel like I'm being baited this entire segment. I'm enjoying. Notice how I flipped it so that I'm reading them. I th- Yeah, you did. Well done. I think you can be a prayerful, faithful preacher and still draw from modern psychology. Yeah. <laughs> so I
2: feel like the danger in these kind of things of like just uh, just. Pray and preach the Bible, which, of course, I believe we need to be prayerful and our messages yes. need to be grounded totally. in Scripture. Like, that is foundational. But it is also sometimes, sometimes Ayo, an, ex- here we go. an excuse for pest or laziness. Oh, snap. Like, oh, I don't ever talk about culture. I don't ever talk about, well. Just prayer and preach. Sometimes yeah. you're going to be able to bring in things from the outside that help us even understand. So it's not in place of Scripture. Right, But it is not all psychology is of the devil, not all right. this. And so if all truth is God's truth, we could be pulling. Into, think about the number of segments here where you've dis- you've used the phrase brain science. And, right. and we
1: end up unpacking stuff that's really helpful. And I think well, not uh, to mention that Jesus and the apostle yep. Paul and others use similar methods. They're yes. drawing from things that would have been familiar in culture. They're drawing from phrases and references. And I don't know. I, again, I do want to I want to. I want to give him credit. I do think, in general, we need to be a a more prayerful people. Yeah. I think that's actually very, very true. Okay. Number
2: four, stop trying to be like the world. If a pastor fills his mind with the world all week and expects the Spirit of God to speak boldly through him from the pulpit, he will be gravely mistaken. The sermon cannot rise in its life-giving forces above the preacher. Uh, Dead men give out dead sermons, and dead sermons kill. Everything depends on the spiritual character of the preacher. That is also E.M. Bounds. Uh, when God brings change, separation and prayer has been the catalyst. And so unplug the TV, turn off Facebook, and get back into the word prayer and worship. So this is basically a call. Pastor, you need to be um, in the word and in prayer. And there we go.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, for the sake of time, skip that one. Number five, stop asking, will this topic offend my audience? And start asking, will my silence offend God? mm a paraphrase that is often attributed to Alex Day. Oh, gosh. Tocqueville. I, I chose the wrong one to read here. <laughs> Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, a Frenchman who authored Democracy in America in the early 1800s, helps to better understand this point. He says, I looked throughout America to find where her, great, her greatness originated. I looked for it in her harbors, on her shorelines, in her fertile fields, in boundless prairies, and in her gold mines and vast world commerce. But it was not there. It was not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I understand the secret of her success. America is great because she is good, and if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Go yeah. ahead. So I <laughs> I love the
2: phrase, right, that the pulpit is aflame with righteousness. I just, I'm just i just not sure I agree with the dichotomies, right? Like, uh, okay. will my topic offend, or will it be aflame with righteousness? Like, sometimes... It, there are times as pastors were called to offend. Sometimes pastors have used the whole we can't be scared to offend to just be jerks. Right. As and an like, excuse for being offensive. Exactly. No, you're actually being offensive. Like right. and you should stop that, right? <laughs> like none of us want to be silent on things. Like I don't I don't know. Some I do people do. I think some people agreed, want to be silent. agreed, but but the painting with a broad brush here, I want I want the pulpit of Four Corners Community Church. You want the pulpit of of uh, the yellow box to be Uh, metaphorically aflame with righteousness. The Holy Spirit is doing a powerful work. We all want that. I'm just not sure I agree with all of his. If you're doing this, then that, you know, like some of the dichotomies here I'm struggling with.
1: And I get what he's saying. And we've all heard stories of somebody that, you know, Maybe a a big giver said, hey, I don't want you to talk about this topic anymore. And the pastor sort of succumbed to that pressure or there was an issue or something in culture that they they shied away from because they didn't want to make people mad. I I think there certainly are those situations. I think you're spot on. I think so often, at least in my experience, so often that particular trope is used as an excuse to just be a mean person. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know. What happened to it's your loving kindness that leads people (laughs) to repentance, God? Like not... It's not the pounding of the pulpit that leads people to repentance. It's God's kindness, his pursuit, his love and mercy and grace and Mm. forgiveness. And as a reminder, one last time before we wrap up this segment, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. We're just to be faithful with whatever it is that God's given us. Amen. In the news of hard right turns, (laughs) (laughs) here's the headline, and I'll leave it at that. Male pill, why are we still waiting? That's coming up next. For some reason, we're going to talk about this on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian from. Brian. Yes. Where on Facebook can they find us? Uh, the Common Good Radio Show. Where on Twitter can they find us? Uh, at Common Good Talk. Where on the World Wide Web can they find Everywhere. us?
2: Everywhere uh, they could find us at 1160Hope.com. I'm doing this without looking at the sign behind me. Okay,
1: here's the kicker, though. Yeah. Where can they call us? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, just try. On that phone right there. <laughs> I don't even have a way to start. It's Eight four seven. Nope.
2: Really? <laughs> oh, it's three one two six six zero two five nine four.
1: I didn't even get the area code I was correct. Say, you were really convinced it was eight four seven. Are we not an eight four seven up here? I mean, we might be. We huh. can talk about this for a couple minutes. <laughs>
2: we're in the three one two. We're in the hollow to
1: the three one two. See, had I known we were going to go that direction, I never would have gone I didn't there. No, but here's the main question: Where can they find our podcast? Oh. Quite literally, wherever I mean, they can find podcasts. I mean, I anyway. think for the next eight minutes, you should just list all the places. <laughs> no, I don't think that's a fun game at all. Are we avoiding this topic?
2: Is that why? No, no, this? no, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. Although, let me do tell you one thing. Okay. So next week, yep. uh, I'm going to be out for a couple days. That's you right. know this. Our listeners don't. So our audience will go up because smart people will be here. <laughs> um So the reason I won't be here is because I'm going to be chaperoning my sons. I'm one of the dads going on my sons. All the sixth grade uh, classes in Downers Grove at some point during the year go on a three-day school retreat to Camp Edwards. So there's learning. They go to different ecosystems. But it's really just for fun, like your last year of it. And so I get to be one of the dads going super excited. It's going to be fun. Uh, so it's up in East Troy, Wisconsin, maybe. Nice. And uh, I I made the mistake today of looking at the ten day forecast. Oh no! Next Friday in East Troy, Wisconsin. 47 degrees no. high no. temperature. Oh, seriously. 47 degrees is the high hmm. temperature. I saw that and I was a little less excited to chaperone the trip. Now I'm just depressed. So many hooded sweatshirts will be worn on this trip. <laughs> we got to get a common good hooded hoodie sweatshirt. Uh, you, you, you pretend that I haven't even asked for that yet. That
1: has been requested. Has it? Yes, I, there's we, not been movement on that. So, uh, so a hoodie and a fedora—that would be—that'd be fun to. And I'll bet you people would buy that swag. Would they? Yeah. How many fedoras do you see walking around in the streets every day in the studio? That's true. <laughs> that's true. Touche. And I usually see me on the streets. But it would be—it uh, would be interesting. I
2: feel like—I uh, feel like that's. We gotta, I think we, we continue to grow the common good empire, and then people will wear the fedora. They'll can, wear it. No,
1: can we please not call it an empire? That's Yet? No. None of that. How many I,
2: listeners do we need before we can call it an empire? I
1: don't want it ever to be an Why empire. Why not? Because. It'd be fun.
2: No, it would not. What would you like to be? The common good?
1: Family. Empire Family. <laughs> the Empire Family? I think that's already a TV show, isn't it? <laughs> and I don't think it goes well. All right, the it's, Common Good Family does work. It's the that. second time Jesse Smollett showed up on the show.
2: I, I got to give it to you. That that does sound nicer. Ah, thank the you. The Common Good Family.
1: All right, enough stalling. You ready? Sure. Oh, we're we not go. stalling. We don't really have much to say about this we're one. We're <laughs> not, not stalling. Yeah. The male pill. Why are we still waiting? All right. A birth control pill for men has passed initial human safety tests. Experts at a leading medical conference have heard. The Wednesday daily pill contains hormones designed to stop sperm production. It would be a welcome addition to condoms or vasectomy, the only options currently available to men. But doctors at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting were told it could still take a decade to bring it to market. What do you think of all that, Brian From
2: I think uh, it is great. I don't see what the problem would be, right? So uh, that's wild that it could take 10 years. I didn't know any of these stuff could take 10 years. That's interesting. Uh, I don't know why that would be a problem. It seems uh, – well, I suppose it's a problem if you are of the background that thinks birth control is wrong across the board. Uh, but I would say if you're okay with female birth control, then this is a welcomed addition and, and not a bad thing.
1: That's it? That's your. <laughs> that is my take. That is my take. It does say later whether women would trust men to reliably take it is another issue. <laughs> it is the funny we, one. Did. we actually posted this on our Facebook page and uh, – SC wrote, she said, uh, whenever it's ready, it needs to be small, blue, and packaged with remote <laughs> control.
2: We're going in areas we've never got on this show. This is it's fun. true,
1: I know. Uh, Mel Booth said, finally. Uh, I mean, there's a, it's, you know, Laney said, why not? Uh, Kyle Shufflin said, this would be best for couples where the female struggles with birth control pill, unless it's more affordable. Which I wonder what he means by that. I mean, what is this? I've, I have certainly heard people, uh, women with the birth control can cause all sorts of like their bodies not react to it the way that they want it to. Or sometimes it's just the regularity of taking something can be really mm-hmm. overwhelming. But uh, I am I am curious, one, like why you think it would take so long for this to actually be available on market? And two, why isn't this something that we've worked on sooner?
2: Uh, that's a great question. I do think the reason it takes so long, I think. Uh, FDA takes long with all drugs and almost too long, right? You'll you'll meet people uh, who have a kid who's sick or something, and they'll be like, we've got this experimental drug, but they said it won't be ready for, you know, past testing for six years or whatever. And so on that hand, it's okay. It's you, you want the testing to be done. It says so far it's been tested in animals only, but the researchers behind it have recently received funding to look to begin uh, human trials and i that always i'm gonna take a little bit of a right turn here oh it's always odd to me people who would be willing to to be part of a human drug trial they pay pretty good money yeah you ever seen like been watching tv and the and the the whatever drug comes up and they start listing the side effects how do you think they figure those out (laughs) (laughs) it's It's a risk it's a
1: risk risk driving your car so i might as well get paid for it (laughs) right
2: so so you would be pro a uh, human drug trial you'd, you'd go for that i
1: i tried when i was in college because i was so broke oh i knew we'd get a story here I'm, what did... i'm already just too broken for anyone to want me i have like a low white blood cell count and i my eyes shake and you I, got turned down uh yeah a couple of places <laughs> to to be to to be a part of a drug trial uh, i don't know that it was a drug trial some kind of medical trial of some kind maybe it was like a might have been something a little more benign, like a... We are not going to let you sleep for four days to test the effects. Yeah, maybe something like that. Or it was like, oh, would you try this new protein powder or something like that? It's a little less Frankenstein-y, you know, than like, we're going to hook you up to all these wires and needles and stuff. But yeah. but you weren't allowed to... Yeah, I can't remember the specifics now. But there's yeah at least one that I tried. They were like, hey, babe, we'll pay you 150 bucks for, you know... Two weeks of trials i was like done i just said i didn't i didn't pass like, you, I didn't pass you will grow tests. a tail but we'll give you that'd be awesome bring out the tail i'm fine with that <laughs> what could possibly go wrong <laughs> who wouldn't come see the pastor with the tail 150 bucks and a tail i think you seriously underestimate how broke I was at this time. When are we I was, talking? Are we talking in college? Or are we talking yeah, out of college? Yeah, no, this was in, co- in I was, college. I was selling books before the semester was done. I, <laughs> like I was like, I think I pretty much got this figured out. I, I need the money back immediately. <laughs> That's really funny. I, I do
2: remember being in college and the whole sell the book time oh, yeah. was the best. <laughs> what? No, it oh, wasn't. Oh, yes. What
1: are you talking about? You took a 96% hit on what you paid for it.
2: So I'm going to make a confession here. Oh, no. First off, we already know that you left college debt-free. It's because my parents paid for college. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. probably won't surprise you that my parents also paid for my books. And then you got to keep the money when
1: you sold it back? I don't know that they know that I sold them back. (laughs) (laughs) They do now, Brian. Stop it. Your parents (laughs) paid for college, paid for your books, and then you sold the books back and kept the money? Now that, now that I think back, it does sound a little shady now. At the time, it seemed like a good system that was set up. I never thought that male birth control would get us <laughs> to this exact confession, but I'm so glad that we took this particular rabbit trail. Do you think that was wrong? Oh, Brian. <laughs> I think at the very least you should have told them. I, feel, I probably did. I'm going to have to now ask them this. Okay, I'm going to call them. And I'm no, you're gonna, not. I feel, I'm like this is,
2: I feel like that was very entrepreneurial of me.
1: Did you, you do something meaningful
2: with that money? Sure. I <laughs> probably took out my my lovely future bride
1: or I spent it on Taco Bell with my roommates, one of the two. I don't I don't know that your wife would want your dates to be compared to the activities of an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be an association
2: that you want. I feel like I'm gonna get a bad rep for that, but I'll bet you that I am far from the only person in our listening audience oh, out you think there. So? Far. I think there are people out there going like,
1: good move, man. That is a college move right there. All right. John, are you paying attention? Can you post this question on Facebook? And we're going to get some responses to see if people agree with you. Because I would be really curious to know. That would be really interesting if people made that same move. Would you be part of a drug trial?
2: Yes or no. And if you didn't pay for your books, can you sell them and keep the money? Yes
1: or no. (laughs) Wow. This this segment is a a real real hodgepodge. I've
2: I've
3: heard the definition loaded question.
1: That that pretty much fits. You could
3: put that as the definition of loaded question.
1: You are not wrong. I say we keep this insanity going with a little interweb insanity. That wasn't it. That was not it. (laughs) That is what's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone, welcome back to The Common Good on the wonkiest show we've had in a while. Yeah. Top five, probably, right? Oh, that last segment. That was it. (laughs) I don't know
2: what we were thinking. Like, I don't know if we wait to get fired or we just go (laughs) hand in our resignation now, but that
1: last one. Just we get it. We understand. (laughs) They're going to walk you with, nope, we know. (laughs) We know. We know. We've already packed up your stuff for you. Anywho, if you're new to the show, uh, we like to end it every day with a little interweb insanity Our producers, they scour the interwebs for just the most absurd stories they can find They print them off, they deliver them to us face down on the the table So we've not seen them, and they also have loaded sound effects that we have not heard We're going to read them, we usually stumble through them a good deal So be patient with us, and uh, Brian Fromm is going to kick us off China Drone finds fugitive
2: living in cave after 17 years no on the run. Way. Chinese police have arrested a man who was on the run for 17 years after he was spotted by a drone living in a cave in remote mountains. Whoa. Song Zheng, 63, escaped from a labor camp in southwestern China's uh, Sichuan province in 2002. He was found living in a narrow cave near his hometown. Uh, in the Yangshan County of Yunnan, look, I'm nailing these yeah, words. Doing great. Officers were reportedly given a tip about Song's whereabouts in early September, but struggled to search the area because of the difficult terrain. They sent out a drone instead, and eventually spotted his camp. Three teams were deployed, and Song uh, Song was arrested. He, uh, he was initially imprisoned for abducting and trafficking women and children, according to police, who didn't elaborate on the circumstances of his crime.
0: What year is it?
1: Is that the whole? I guess. (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) It's like we've been having a lot of those. Is that it? Is that the whole? Uh, All right, Michigan, America's high five. America's high five. Uh, Suspected drunken driver does splits during traffic stop. (laughs) Oh, I hope there's a video. When Sterling Heights, well, that's Sterling Heights for you. Sterling Heights (laughs) police pulled over uh, Michael Axelson. I think I might know him. No. Hmm. We'll come back to that. They expected to see if he was driving under the influence, not to see him show off his inner gymnast. Police attempted to conduct a field sobriety test on the fifty-three year old Madison Heights resident. I might know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but to prove he was not intoxicated, he did the splits. Lieutenant Mario Bastianiali, whatever and it was not even close, said the incident began when officers pulled over a white van at 1.15 AM september nineteenth in the area of Ryan and fifteen mile roads. In a dashcam video, yes, there is video, from police, one of the officers greets uh, Axelson at the driver's side window and asks him if he has a license or ID. The man admits he has neither. How much have you had to drink tonight, asked the officer. Not enough where I shouldn't be driving, sir, Axelson said, slurring his words. <laughs> oh, gosh. He then becomes incoherent, unable to answer the officer's questions about where he was coming from. After getting Axelson's name and date of birth, the two officers... Have him get out of the van. You think you're in any condition to do a field sobriety test for me? Real quick, one of them masks? if you want me to, I will. Uh, I, I'm reading too much. I don't think so. I think I can go like this, he said, breaking out into the splits. That's very impressive, said one of the officers.
3: Don't act like you're not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: pretty funny.
2: So I just looked up Michael Axelson on Facebook, and I found one in Michigan, and you are not friends with him uh, with on Facebook. That's yeah, all. that's well, true. That's A man lied about carjacking to cover up affair. A Memphis man was arrested after police say he lied about being carjacked so he didn't have to tell his wife about his infidelity. Uh, On Monday, officers were called to Barnstable Street where they met Anthony Thomas. The man claimed that two men carjacked him while he was sitting uh, in his vehicle. After running the license plate information, police discovered that the vehicle had actually been towed several hours before. Officers confronted him with the information, and that's when Thomas confessed to making the entire story up. He reportedly told authorities that he lied so that his wife wouldn't
1: learn about his infidelity.
0: They're a fantastic couple. I love them. That's
1: <laughs> good. That's good. kind of the go-to, isn't it? Yep. Uh, Louisiana, a 10-year-old found driving school bus. Huh. A 10-year-old child in Jennings was found this weekend driving a school bus across town, according to the Jennings Police Department. The child rode his bike to the location where the buses were, and apparently the buses were unlocked. Police say... They were contacted by a concerned citizen who saw a young child in a Jefferson Davis Paris school bus Sunday afternoon, September 19th. They walked over while the child was getting off the bus and began interacting with them in an attempt to distract the child until the police got there. When police arrived, they found out that the child was 10 years old and had driven the bus across town from wow. Jennings High School. The child was taken into custody, sure, and the bus was brought back to the Jefferson Davis school board. Jemis uh, says the child and his parents could face charges following this incident. There is possibility upon review from the DA's office that they can be charged with improper supervision of a child
2: yes hail
1: to the bus driver bus
2: driver man (laughs) why are the keys left in the bus
1: yeah that doesn't seem
2: smart oh i saw this story last one out of new york a woman climbed into the lion's exhibit at the bronx zoo and started dancing so not smart zoo officials say a woman reportedly climbed over a safety barrier at the lion exhibit Uh, The Bronx Zoo said in a statement that staff received a report that an individual climbed over the visitor barrier at the African lion exhibit. A video of the incident posted on Instagram shows the woman climbing over. A man could be heard asking her to come back while she appears to be taunting the animal from really close range, by the way. The video might have been posted on the woman's Instagram, which also has another video of her doing something similar at the giraffe exhibit. Uh, A video posted on another account shows the woman dancing in front of the lion before turning back. The Bronx Zoo says they have zero tolerance policy on trespass and violation barriers. Go so to lions. <laughs> <laughs> the action was a serious violation, they said. An unlawful trespass, barriers, and rules are in place to keep both visitors, staff, and animals safe.
3: Goodbye. I'm not going to waste my time arguing with a man who's lining up to be a hot lunch. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was pretty on the nose, man. Oh, man. It <laughs> well, was. Never a dull moment. Oh. We promise we'll be on better behavior tomorrow. I'm not sure we will be. That's true. I promise for me. There I'll, you go. Just me and <laughs> me in my house will be better tomorrow. Hope you'll join us from 4 to 6 p.m. here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're alive.